0: In the mountains of Colorado is one of the busiest transportation hubs in the United States, the Denver International Airport, or DIA. But many have suggested that there is more going on there than first appears. Hanging on the walls are supposed to be clues that underneath the facility, in hidden underground tunnels, something ominous and threatening is going on, maybe even apocalyptic. And so, let's take a trip to the DIA and see what we can uncover. This is only a test.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Uncover-Up. Uh, I'm joined by Nathan Radke, your super-duper host. Hi, and, Nathan.
0: And I am joined by Dr. Lee Kunla.
1: Hi. Not super-duper, just here.
0: Uh, that's, I mean, these days, that's super-duper enough. <laughs> we're talking about an airport, which is an airplane-adjacent topic, which makes me happy. Right. And we're also going to be doing some analysis of modern art. And Lee, if I've been paying attention to these episodes, uh, you love modern art, correct?
1: You know, one day, I'm, I, I will give you and all the listeners my theory of modern art which is which is very nuanced and very sophisticated.
0: And we're all holding our breath <laughs> in anticipation of it and we're very excited. All right, so here's what we're going to do. All right. We are talking about the Denver Airport. Yep. The first thing I would like to do is to take you on a tour of the Denver International Airport. Okay. There's a lot of strange and disturbing aspects to it. In fact, it's such a weird place. ...that as you and I and the listeners go on this Theatre of the Mind tour together, I might even put some eerie music in the background. Okay. There it is. Creepy. Here we go. One of the first odd things about the DIA, Denver International Airport, is that it's already sort of up in the sky. Because of Denver's mountainous location, the airport is over a mile above sea level... But it isn't what's up in the sky that we're worried about today. It's what's hidden underground. Imagine it's back in 2019, before the pandemic. Lee, you and I are flying to Area 51, but we have a stopover in Denver. So as our imaginary plane comes into land, we look out our window at the runways. Some have said that the layout of the runways appears familiar and menacing. That the shape of the runways mimics one of the most terrible symbols of the 20th century, the swastika so we're already on edge a little as our plane circles and waits for permission to land. Then, as we start our approach, you look to your left and you see something inexplicable. There, standing in a field beside the airport is a disturbing figure. A blue horse with glowing red eyes, 30 feet tall as it rears back on its hind legs with a horrifying contorted expression on its blue, veiny horse face as it stands guard over the airport. It's a sculpture named Blue Mustang, although the locals call it Blue Cipher. And you shudder a little, not only because of the way it looks, but because you know that it killed its creator. As he was working on the sculpture in June of 2006, part of Blue Blucifer came loose and pinned artist Luis Jimenez against a steel girder where he bled to death. Oh
1: my goodness.
0: The plane manages to land without Blucifer shooting it out of the sky with lasers from its devil red eyes, and we go into the airport itself. But any sense of relief we might feel about getting out of view of Blucifer quickly evaporates as we're picking up our luggage. We have the uncomfortable feeling that we are being watched. We look around us, but nothing is out of the ordinary. But then we look up and we come eyeball to eyeball with one of the bronze gargoyles that perches above the luggage claim area. It's just staring down at us sitting in what appears to be an open suitcase, also made of bronze, staring at you, evaluating you, judging you. We realize we're in the wrong luggage zone, which is probably why the gargoyles were looking at us with such disdain, so we head to another section of the baggage claims area, and there we see it, two massive murals in bright colors. And what the murals depict is stranger than anything we've seen yet. The first mural is titled In Peace and Harmony with Nature, It's divided into two halves. In the first half, a group of children stand weeping around three open coffins. Inside the center coffin appears to be an indigenous person from what is now called Mexico, lying dead and holding an equally dead baby. The coffin to the left appears to have an African woman in traditional garb. The coffin on the right contains a young girl who looks like she might be German or Dutch. Some of the children are also holding clear glass cases with extinct animals in them, including a passenger pigeon and a great auk. At the heads of the coffins are a dead leopard and a sea turtle, as well as a bison head on a trophy mount. In the background, behind the weeping children, is a massive forest fire. In the second half of the first mural, a group of children from all over the world wearing the traditional garb of their home countries are laughing and singing as they stand around what appears to be some sort of magical plant, glowing and growing in the middle of the mural. In the foreground are live and healthy animals jumping and flying depending on whether they have legs or wings, and the background is divided into four climate zones, a temperate forest, the mountains, a rainforest, and a desert. At the bottom is the name of this mural, in peace and harmony with nature. The second mural is even odder. This one is in the same style and the same vivid colors by the same artist and is titled children of the world dream of peace. Again it's divided into two halves. In the center of the first half of the mural a soldier dressed in what looks like a Nazi SS uniform and wearing a gas mask over his face is holding an assault rifle and stabbing a dove in the ass with a scimitar. At his feet are what look like concentration camp prisoners or starving refugees and in the background is the ruins of a building. In the second half under a massive rainbow dozens of happy children from around the world are standing over the corpse of the now dead soldier, as they sing, play guitar, and smash the dead soldier's scimitar with a hammer over an anvil. The dove that was previously being stabbed in the ass is now perched happily on the dead soldier. From the side, children bring more swords to be smashed, wrapped in the flags of the UK, the USA, Palestine, and Israel. Running across the second half of the second mural is a banner with the words peace, written in several languages. It's a very strange sight to see as you're waiting to pick up your baggage. But we still have some time to kill before our flights. We keep wandering around the airport and we come across a stone tablet with a familiar logo carved into it. The symbol of the Freemasons. It's the dedication capstone for the airport and underneath the Mason symbol is carved New World Airport Commission, which is an organization that doesn't even exist. It's almost time to catch our connecting flight, so we make our way to the gate the entire time we're extremely conscious of the floor we're walking over. Not only because it has some strange engravings on it, for example, the letters AU, AG, which could stand for Australia Antigen, aka Hepatitis B, but because we know we're walking over top of miles and miles of mysterious tunnels that run underneath the entire airport. It's with relief that we make our way back onto our plane and buckle ourselves into our chairs. But as we take off, we can't help but look back at DIA, where we see Lucifer again. It's waiting for us. We will see it again someday. And when we do, maybe it will be the last thing we ever see.
1: Those my murals look
0: cool. I mean, the murals are wild. Th- those are wild murals to have in an airport. I think they're great.
1: I, I, I so much prefer that to just that bland, pablum advertising nonsense that you get almost everywhere else.
0: Yeah, for banks and things. Although I will say that in our Toronto airport, they had a dinosaur skeleton for a while. I oh, was yeah? In, I, I was into that. That's the background to this airport story, why people find it creepy when they go there. And these art exhibits are, are some of the main reasons why people started to look for conspiracy and something sinister in this particular facility. So let's go through, again, some of the stuff we just talked about and, and sort of discuss it in a, in a less frightening, less creepy music kind of way. Okay. Right. Let's start off with Blucifer because that's like the wait, first thing wait, you wait. see. Can
1: we go? No, You we we see the swastika layout of the runway.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. So
1: is it a swastika? Because that should be like pretty obvious to some designers, you know. I mean, if accidentally you put a bunch of roads together and they look like a swastika, that should pop out of the design project.
0: Yeah. I mean, here's a tip to anybody who's designing any kind <laughs> of building. <laughs> If you look at your building from the top and it looks like a swastika, maybe you need to readjust your building. So
1: does it actually, or is this one of, do I really need to interpret it quite loosely?
0: It doesn't really, I mean, it looks kind of like a pinwheel. To me, when I see it, I don't necessarily see a swastika. Like if you, if you drew a swastika over it, you would see a swastika.
1: Oh my goodness. Okay, so I've just looked it up. And when you don't have the swastika drawing on top of it, It really is just a bunch of different runway roads, I guess, whatever you call them. Um, Runways. Runways, juxtaposition to each other. But yeah, you could take some of them and draw a swastika.
0: But you would have to ignore other ones. Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. And there's also a reason why the runways are running in these four different directions. It's so that you can take off and land with minimal crosswinds, regardless of which direction the wind is coming from. Because you don't want to land or take off in a crosswind. And they also don't cross each other because you don't really want planes that are landing to crash into each other.
1: Yeah, you know that I like to gather evidence for how I might die in a plane crash. And apparently one of the most common aviation accidents is one airplane landing into another one that's on the runway.
0: Yeah, and actually the previous airport to the DIA, because this is actually another thing that people found very suspicious. They said Denver already had an airport. Uh They had the Stapleton Airport. And I've also heard people say that the Stapleton Airport actually had more runways than the DIA. And so it was very suspicious. If Mm. you were building a new airport, why did it have fewer runways? Right. Well, the answer is that the Stapleton runways did intersect with each other. So even though there were more of them, there was an increased chance of planes crashing into each other while they were landing. This is why, because, of course, Lee is terrified of flying, You used to be relieved when you were landing. Yes. But now you've learned that actually you should be the most terrified when you're landing.
1: Well, I knew that takeoff and landing was always the most dangerous. But I just, there was something something very primitive in my brain, which was thinking, well, we're getting closer to land. So every second that passes, I am getting safer and safer. I still sort of feel that way. I mean, the whole thing about my airplane fear is it is totally irrational. I know that. But... I still have it.
0: <laughs> it's rational, but it's visceral. It's real. Exactly. Kind of like the the fear that I have when I look at Blucifer.
1: Oh, yeah? Does it freak you out?
0: Have you seen photographs of this thing? Well, I'm going to look it up now. you got to look it up right now. If Having
1: you- clearly studied for the wrong podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm looking at a, a very literal depiction of a horse, but one that looks... Scared, frightened, angry. It's rearing back. on It's, its rearing legs. back. It's, it's got like a veins.
0: veiny. It's anatomically correct.
1: Yeah, and it's got uh, red, orange eyes that seem to be glowing. Yep. No, that's yeah. That's 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 not a settling image.
0: No, it no, it's genuinely it's creepy AF. But is it evidence? See, here's something that I think you want to talk about. Yeah, this is something that Lee always wants to talk about. The difference between a creepy feeling and actual proper evidence for a conspiracy.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, over the years as we've been investigating uh, uh, different conspiracies, one of the things that has struck me is in those people who believe in certain conspiracies that you and I have decided, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it. One of the starting points is how they feel about certain things, say, in the world. I'm thinking about Loose Change was an example of this. So this was this film that talked about 9/11 being an inside job. It was really one of the films or the film that coalesced a lot of suspicions around 9/11 being an inside job into a large-scale conspiracy narrative. But in the film talk about or the narrator talks about how things kind of don't add up in in modern society. David Icke, who is behind the Lizard People Conspiracy and many others, does something similar. You know, things don't really add up. And it's true that I think a lot of us have a sense when we're engaging in various aspects of our daily routine that things are not set up for our benefit or our convenience or for the good of the world or good of, you know, there's things aren't, especially now, don't seem to be working that well. And I can certainly derive a feeling from that, one of frustration, annoyance, anger, that this is not right. Now, often those feelings are, are, are legitimate. Things are not working very well. They could be done better. The world is in a state of, you know, kind of going to hell in the handbasket. I'm thinking about things like climate change, or whatever, you know, take your, take your issue. We seem to have a lot of difficulty fixing our issues ameliorating those social problems. If anything, things are always getting worse. I think it leaves a lot of us with a feeling that things just aren't right. And that feeling is a legitimate feeling. And it is also sometimes the starting point of a conspiratorial seduction.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said. The conspiratorial seduction. Trademark Lee Kuhnland 2022. (laughs) Because once you're put in that mindset of fear or anger, you're much more likely to start making connections and putting together patterns that might not necessarily be there. So when you see something like a great, big, veiny, anatomically correct, blue, weird horse, that's put you in a mindset where you're, you're sort of, you're unsettled. And when you're unsettled, you're going to start like, looking around for explanations for that feeling of being unsettled. And things that you might not notice... Now you're sort of, you're keyed into it. You're primed for it.
1: Yeah, I think your example really illustrates that. I think, though, also, you could be unsettled somewhere else in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, that your relationship is deteriorating. your, your, Your job is unsatisfying. You are in ill health or all of those things and a lot more on top of it. And then those things predispose you to start thinking about why is the world so screwed up. Why am I suffering so much? And so it might not be directly the encounter with the horse, but then you start seeing these quote-unquote signs that seem to point in a certain direction. And I think we are very uh, good at then generating narratives that that make sense of disparate random occurrences.
0: Yeah, even when the evidence doesn't really necessarily lead to a uh, conspiracy, like in the case of Blucifer, It's a creepy horse. There's no denying it. No denying it. But so what? I mean, there are horses in apocalypse literature. There's the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. But first of all, there were four of them. And they were horsemen, not just horses. There Mm. was people on them. It wasn't the one horse of the apocalypse. Right. It was the four horsemen of the apocalypse.
1: And even if it was the one horse of the apocalypse, so somebody creates a statue, let's say they named it, The One Horse of the Apocalypse. Or let's say this guy did The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse.
0: Now, so what? What does that mean? And especially, I mean, and this is something that we're going to have to discuss because we're going to get into the murals next. It's a kind of evidence that is extremely popular, but a kind of evidence that I'm very unsatisfied with. And that's when people approach pop culture and look for some kind of hidden symbols as if, the evil Illuminati have been placing hints within pop culture to mock us. So that's,
1: that's a part of this that I kind of don't, I've never fully understood in terms of the whole secret society conspiracy narrative. So let us imagine, for argument's sake, that there does in fact exist the kind of super secret society that is completely controlling the world. Why let us know about it? And why let us know about it? Either tell us about it, because you can, or don't tell us about it, because you don't want to, and you can also do that. What's this whole, like, wink-wink, nudge-nudge to the clued-in, not-sheeple types out there who can read the back of a dollar bill for, you know, quote-unquote, what it really is? But I don't get what is the logic behind if this society actually exists. Why would they operate like that?
0: Oh, they wouldn't. They wouldn't, right? Because there are secret societies. Exactly. There are, like, covert groups. Yeah. And one thing they don't tend to do is go into pop culture and try to, like, pepper pop culture with with clues. Of their existence. Of their existence.
1: Because what's interesting for a lot of secret societies is that we actually know about them.
0: Yeah, we got Um, Skull and Bones. I mean, the Freemasons are a secret of society. The
1: Freemasons are a secret of society. The CIA is a secret of society. Yep, the NSA. So the thing about secret societies is that, by and large, it's not their existence that's a secret, but what they do is a secret.
0: Yeah, and one of the ways they keep it a secret is by not spending. Okay, you know what it's like? This is (laughs) the first of two times Batman is going to come up in this. Okay. Like the Riddler you're off committing crimes, but you can't just commit the crimes. You also have to like leave elaborate riddles. Right. Because I guess you want to get caught. And and we sort of treat the uh, these sort of super elite groups like the, the theoretical Illuminati as if they're the Riddler. Right. That it isn't enough for them to control the world, but they also like want to kind of mock us by going into a Simpsons episode and putting like a pyramid in the background. Right. And And that's just not the kind of evidence that, that you and I are really that into.
1: No, because just to be, you know, formal and strict about it, it's not actually evidence. It's not evidence of anything. It's circumstantial stuff that you can sort of narrate into what seems to be a theory or a coherent whole. But it doesn't. it's not actual
0: evidence. And even if we say, okay, maybe there is something to it, uh, although I don't think we're willing to do that, There are other explanations why there would be a big horse outside of the airport. Now, you are not a big American football fan. I am not. But I bet you can still name the American, the Denver American football team. Is it Broncos? It is Broncos. Denver Broncos? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a horse. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right. Of course it is, now that I think about it. (laughs) Yeah, Broncos are horses. And so at the Denver airport, to have a giant horse, that's so strange. Not particularly that strange. No. So I mean, it is obviously, as I said before, that paint that that sculpture is super creepy though, and it did actually kill the the creator.
1: That is a sad footnote to the whole tragic
0: and and just sort of adds a creepiness level to it. So what about these murals, which really drive a lot of this conspiracy theory? This idea that these murals are evidence that at this airport there's some connection to the apocalypse that the airport is going to be used as a place to protect people from the apocalypse, or this airport is going to be used to initiate the apocalypse. But there's something apocalyptic about the airport. And, okay. it, and a lot of it comes from these murals by the artist Leo Tanguma. Hi listeners, it's me, Nathan Radke. What happened next while we were recording this episode was entirely my fault. I kept mentioning modern art, and Lee finally snapped and launched into an intelligent explanation of artistic interpretation in the Western tradition. And while it was insightful and interesting, it wasn't necessarily the sort of thing that people tuning into a conspiracy podcast are in the mood for. So I've cut it out, and I've placed it in the outtakes at the end of this episode, in case you are in the mood for it. And now, back to the episode. Oh dear. Okay, but people have asked... Leo Tanguma. So what do you mean with these, yeah. with these bizarre paintings? And he said, well, he wanted to depict humanity moving away from environmental destruction and genocide towards peace and harmony. Cool. So it's almost that the problem with the paintings is that they aren't metaphorical enough, uh. that they are too literal. You will have one half of each mural where terrible stuff is happening, and then the other half, good stuff is happening. So
1: what you're saying is we needed more Jackson Pollocks and Rothkos in
0: there. Well, then people would have just ignored them and none of this would have happened. Exactly. I mean, they really are bizarre paintings. (laughs) But what about some of the other things that we come across when we walk through the airport? What about that? Remember AU and AG carved into the ground? Yeah. People have argued that, like, hepatitis, that's, that's Australian antigen. That's code for Australian antigen, which is hepatitis B. And so the argument is that the elite have carved that into the ground... As a hint to let us know that that's the disease they're going to use to wipe us all out.
1: Okay, fine. Not a very useful disease, is it? I mean, given the disease, it has a
0: vaccine, and you can treat it. Yeah. Also problematic is that Au is also how you would label gold in the periodic table of elements, and Ag is how you would label silver. And if you look at Au and Ag carved into the floor of the Denver Airport it's It's carved into a mining cart. Uh. So this seems to me to be a pretty clear reference to the history of mining within Colorado rather than a fairly ineffective disease that the Illuminati are going to use to wipe out the world. so
1: in in thinking through this stuff, uh, while you were talking, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, that's exactly what a sheeple would think, right? I mean, Ah, we are these suckers who, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you didn't even use the sound effects board. We're these suckers who just, you know, take, take the mainstream interpretation of everything for granted, and we are just oblivious to all the clues that are lying around us. But there's a problem with that kind of line of reasoning, and... It's that you get out of what in the history of science was maybe one of the most fundamental discoveries in order to be able to move certain types of knowledge forward is the notion of falsifiability. Can you prove the statement wrong? So when you want to do science, you have to you have to somehow come up with statements that could in theory be proven wrong, even if we don't have the equipment to do it now.
0: Yeah, you could say, if I am wrong about this, this is what we would expect to see if we did this experiment.
1: Exactly, exactly. Or just there is a way that this could be proven wrong, like just in principle, when you approach a Freudian analyst, you know, they say, you say what your problems are. And let's say the diagnosis is, well, you've got, you know, hang-ups with your parents, with your mother usually, right? And you say, no, that doesn't apply to me for the following reasons.
0: Aha, that proves that it does.
1: Exactly, right? And then if you say, oh, yeah, I think that's right, then it's like, aha. That proves that it does. That proves that we're on the right track. So in a sense, Freudianism has been accused of not being falsifiable. No matter what answer you get to any posed question, it seems to validate the theory. And this is the problem I have with some of this all-encompassing global Illuminati lizard elite kind of stuff is where's the falsifiable moment? Where is that moment where I would be able to generate evidence that would prove it incorrect?
0: I'll give you an example having to do with the Illuminati. I was interviewing a guy uh, years ago back in 2012, and he said that the Illuminati were going to detonate a nuclear device in London during the Olympics. Mm. And they were going to do this in order to then cause chaos, and in that chaos, the Illuminati would rise up and seize control over the entire world and and build the new world order. Right. I said, okay, well, it's spring of 2012 now. Yeah. So, like, this will or will not happen in the next couple months. I was actually going to be in London that summer. So uh, I was going to be really sad if it was just a smoking radioactive crater. (laughs) So I asked him, okay, I don't think that's going to happen. But if a nuclear device goes off in London this summer then I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to consider the possibility that you were probably right. Uh I said, if an atomic device doesn't go off, will you change your mind and think that you're wrong? Yeah. And he said, no. Why not? He said, if a nuclear bomb goes off, then obviously we were right because we thought a nuclear bomb would go off. If a nuclear bomb doesn't go off, then that proves we were right because it means the Illuminati realized we were onto them and had to change their plan. So therefore, if an atomic bomb doesn't go off... If more than anything, that shows we were definitely on the right track.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant example. And it shows exactly the problem that you then are in, in terms of sort of taking this stuff seriously, is what counts as data. Apparently, everything counts as data for the preconceived notion or conclusion, and nothing counts as contrary data. So we're in the world of non-falsifiability. You can't falsify this stuff in a way that would be satisfactory to the believers, because yep. this stuff is not put in falsifiable terms. I like that you're like, well, you know, I changed my mind.
0: Oh, I mean, if a nuclear bomb had gone off, I would have been like, "Huh, that guy was really onto something." Yeah. But, yes. Uh fortunately, spoiler alert, a nuclear <laughs> bomb did not go off. Further spoiler alert, that guy continued to believe that he was clearly onto something.
1: Right. So, okay, so hold on. We 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 got to art. This is not this is a very surprising day for me. Um We got to art. We did some art theory. The paintings are quite suggestive, but essentially you can stick anything in there and it just validates what you want to believe to begin with. I mean, I guess in the same way, you and I are looking at these paintings being like nothing to see here, guys. It's just a painting. I mean, you can even ask the artist.
0: And, And what's interesting is the same thing that people have done with the paintings, which you can see. They've also done with the underground tunnels, which you can't see. Okay, and and kind and of in the same way. I guess
1: we got to get to the underground tunnels because this is where really the action is. Yeah, right? this is I where mean, the action is. All and, this and stuff they do on exist. all this stuff on top is just hinting at the fact that there's something really sinister going on below the ground.
0: Right. So now let's get to the like the the nuts and bolts of this. All right, four hundred and seventy thousand square feet under there. Of weird tunnels. Cool. Uh, The airport was due to finish construction in 1993 but didn't finish until 1995 and ended up being three billion with a b, -b -b, three billion (laughs) dollars over budget. Yeah, you know what?
1: Airports are such boondoggle things.
0: But some people found this very suspicious that it was so much over budget and there has been a lot of speculation on YouTube documentaries, uh, TikTok videos, message boards, blogs and an episode of Jesse Ventura concerning what the tunnels might really be for. So here we go. Buckle up. All right. We're heading for the tunnels. So on the Jesse Ventura show, there was a popular hypothesis floated that the tunnels were a kind of modern Noah's Ark, designed to protect the elites from the destruction and upheaval that was about to engulf the Earth due to the upcoming 2012 disaster. Mm. And that's what those paintings were about. I see. Those paintings were showing the 2012 disaster that was about to happen. And on the show, an expert pointed out all of the Mayan imagery and, and the flames and the, the destruction and I, came I... to the conclusion that it was incontrovertible that this was the only possible explanation for these paintings is that they depicted the upcoming 2012 disaster, which we were all about to be wiped out from. You
1: know, if you now allow all possible artistic symbolic traditions to be fodder for interpretation. And then you pick the one that happens to agree with you. Great. Sure.
0: That works. Yeah. But the problem is that, I mean, 2012 conspiracy theories have for the most part aged very poorly. (laughs) Because it's, we're recording this a decade later in 2022. But, but what's fascinating to me is when you watch it now, here you have an expert Explaining, and he, he sounds very convincing, he sounds yeah. very convinced about how the only possible interpretation of this artwork and the existence of the tunnels is that the tunnels are going to be used by the elite to protect themselves from the imminent destruction of the world.
1: So here's another thing that occurs to me when talking about this. A lot of the early American founders were Freemasons. Mm-hmm. And they put Freemason imagery in, like, key things, including on the dollar bill. Okay?
0: They did. Now, fine. And there was some sketchy stuff with the Freemasons. Sure. There was some there was some murders, there was some disappearances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're totally. a secret of society. They're gonna get up to some sketchy stuff. Yeah. So so
1: now today people will be like, oh look at all this Freemason imagery. That means that the most hyperbolic interpretation of who the Freemasons are and what they can do must therefore be true. But no, not necessarily. I mean, maybe it's just that sometimes people in power also have these fantasies about you know other worlds or secret societies and imagine that they belong to something bigger or or purposely use this imagery so let's say let's say that that artist actually was depicting a Mayan uh prophecy depicting the end of the world uh I'm still very underwhelmed mm-hmm. am I just like am I not in like Am I just a cynic right now? Yes, I mean,
0: and lacking imagination. I, I would guess say. so. Because if you had more imagination, what uh, you'd be able to do is look into those tunnels and see the Freemasons, the Illuminati, the Reptilians, right? Any of those groups might be down there. Okay. What's interesting to me also is that more recent interpretations have switched the purpose of the underground tunnels. Rather than protecting an elite from an upcoming disaster or hiding the elite while they plot their machinations, it's much more common now to find people arguing that the tunnels are going to serve as extermination camps. I see. So it isn't that the elite go into the tunnels and we all die. Now the elite stay on the outside and they put us into the tunnels and Uh we die. So that's a pretty wild swing. Yeah,
1: Two things Two things occur to me also at this point. One is that, you know, all of this has historical precedent for actually happening. I mean, terrible con- things have happened. Concentration camps are real. Yep. Even today, you know, as, as, as horrible as that is. But certainly, you know, we have a lot of historical examples of people being stuck in these, these, ugh, this is so terrible. But then they also— They don't tend to be hidden, though. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, ugh this gets dark mm-hmm. um no this episode
0: is going to get very dark
1: it it it, it just to, just for historical fidelity in germany they put the like they put the death camps outside of germany and they had the work camps inside germany and so there was actually an attempt to hide what was happening at the concentration camps from the german population Because Germans were still able to operate to some extent under the fiction that these are just blah, 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 and not death camps. Mm -hmm. And that's because there were people being killed there, but they weren't at like the industrial level as Auschwitz and stuff. So they tend not to be put like in the city center and celebrated and all that kind of stuff.
0: But, But they also don't have like a false front where you pretend it's like a cookie store.
1: Exactly. And then the other thing about the elites having like escape hatches. I mean, what's that What's that place under the mountain that's the safe haven for the upper echelon of the U.S. government should there be a nuclear strike?
0: Well, there's a few of them, and and we'll get to them in a bit. There's Cheyenne Mountain, yep. there's the Mount Weather Emergency Operations Center, there's Raven Rock. Raven the, Rock is the one I was Raven thinking. Raven Rock.
1: Yeah. And so we have the plan. Like, they exist already. And again, while you might not be given a roadmap on how to get there, we have a general sense that, yeah, like, under this mountain, there is a bunker meant for, and it's, like, it's explicit policy. Like, yeah, it's meant for the elite, political elite, in case of some kind of emergency, of a nuclear attack or something like that.
0: When you have conspiracy theories that have very little real evidence And they're mostly based on symbolism and speculation. This is when you see this kind of wild swinging, Mm. where it's like, either only the people in the tunnels will will survive, or only the people outside of the tunnels will survive. But it's one of those two. It's like, that's a completely different, like, you couldn't (laughs) be more opposite than that. You can't, how can you believe those both? I mean, the tunnels under the airport are large enough and hidden enough to basically fit all of the conspiracy theories in them. So what what is the sheeple
1: interpretation of the tunnels? Like, what do suckers like you and I believe the tunnels? Was there, what was their original purpose? Was it transportation stuff? Like,
0: Well, I actually, I, I, I researched the tunnels because I found them fascinating. The, the story, the sheeple version of the story goes like this. Denver is basically right in the center of the continental United States. Okay. It's an important hub for a lot of airlines because of its central location in the middle of the country. The old Stapleton Airport, we talked about them, and they had runways that were too close together, and so they had to build the new DIA. But when the DIA was in planning stages, United Airlines were refusing to agree to land there And that's how airports make their money, Okay, is, you know, through user fees by these airlines and overpriced muffins, but mostly the user (laughs) fees. And the user fees at the DIA were going to be much higher than at Stapleton, so United Airlines said, we're just going to keep landing at Stapleton. So the DIA planners got United to agree to switch to the new airport, DIA, by promising a new high-tech automated luggage delivering system that would take bags and cargo to and from the aircraft. Uh and that's what was going to go in these tunnels.
1: I see. Okay.
0: So the airport was supposed to open in May of 1994. And airport admin, they were so proud of this new system. It was so high tech. There was robots and computers, and it was amazing. Like, your, your luggage wasn't going to get touched by a human hand. It was just going to get caressed by robot fingers. <laughs> How'd that work out? Well, <laughs> badly. Before they opened the airport in... In April of 1994, they brought a bunch of journalists down to those mysterious tunnels to show off their new system. And there were suitcases flying everywhere. There was (laughs) luggage getting eaten by machines. There was automated carts crashing into each other at high speeds. There was no way for the system to tell when there was a jam. So whenever there was a jam, it would just keep firing bags into it. It was amazing. So that delayed the opening of the airport by an entire year after that fiasco. And so by 2005, like after a decade of the automated system only partially running and ringing up maintenance costs of $1 million a month, they shut down the automated system completely and replaced it with a manual system. And none of this was mysterious. Right. This was embarrassing and out in the open. Yeah. In fact, there were several case studies written up using the Denver automated system as an example of administrative failure. And... This, this part I found fascinating, because if you think about what you have to believe about administrators in order for conspiracy theories to work, mm. it kind of goes against your own experience of how administrators work. Like, I'll give you an example. I know that at, at our college, our administrators on the sixth floor, they are aware of this podcast. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak directly to them for a second. Okay, sixth floor administrators... <laughs> All I'm going to say to, is, do I
1: still want to be part of this?
0: I'm going to say is that rollout you did of the new online portal, it wasn't flawless. It wasn't seamless. That's all I'm going to say.
1: Uh, 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 well, and I will say nothing.
0: That's probably wise. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the findings of the case studies of this tunnel disaster. Okay. And what's interesting is that it's the exact opposite of what you would expect to believe of administration if conspiracies were possible mm-hmm. at this level. Okay, so here's what they did. They underestimated the complexity required. Okay. Due to a lack of proper planning, they had to change strategy on the fly. And so they were always trying to adjust. There was excessive schedule pressure, lack of due diligence. They promised more than was possible. There was communications breakdowns. There were people working in silos, not literal silos, obviously, but (laughs) figurative silos, poor design, poor risk management, poor management oversight, and they ignored expert advice. Right. So we have two hypotheses about these tunnels. One, that it was this boondoggle, this expensive administrative disaster that didn't work. And two, that it's this unbelievably complex and intricate conspiracy, which is working. Right. Right. So in order to believe it was the boondoggle, we have to believe in all of this administrative failure. Mm. In order to believe the conspiracy, we have to believe in like a kind of administrative omniscience and omnipotence. Yeah. So, I mean, think about this. Everybody listening, think about the administrators that you've known. Think about the management that you've known. Think about the people you've we, worked We do for.
1: apologize if you happen to be an administrator and listening to this. If I...
0: that's the case, then you know this better than anybody. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's true. You...
0: <laughs> like, which better describes humans' ability to organize stuff? Is it the ridiculous boondoggle or is it the perfectly well executed conspiracy? No. Which is more common? It seems
1: almost as though people who are into these kinds of conspiracies that are so far reaching and involve so many high levels of bureaucrats and uh, huge amounts of people huge degrees of complexity start from a position of thinking no no normal administrators or normal normal people put into these positions would simply do a better job than this mm-hmm. and that's kind of sweet mm-hmm. isn't it, is it? Sweet. it's it's sort of sweet as a starting point so it's like well because it's such an awful mess nobody could actually have <laughs> you know, voluntarily participated in this. So something much bigger must be going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have one possibility where the Denver airport was so expensive because of sort of typical low-level stuff like kickbacks, some grift, a bunch of incompetence, a bunch of, like, disasters. Or it's because we're really, really good at doing things. And I just feel like when you look at human history... The first one is probably more likely.
1: Yeah, you know, if we're dealing with an omniscient government, how can we? How come like,
0: why? Why do they seem so incompetent? Well, I suppose does, the the answer like, is no, but that's oh that, yeah, yeah, what we're seeing is like the the puppet government, right? And then underneath there's a real government. There's a real government. But
1: again, you get into the falsifi- non falsifiability problem, where it's like, okay, well, who is this government? Where are they? Well, you don't see them because they're so good. Um, you will never get a glimpse of them.
0: And the fact that there's no evidence for them is evidence that they they then exist. Right.
1: Because when you actually look at high levels of government actually trying to do conspiracies, Watergate, Bill Clinton and his sexual dalliances, whatever, they don't work. They're a disaster.
0: Or the ones that we find out about are the ones that don't work and the ones that do work are the ones we never find out about well that's probably true survivor bias
1: i mean no but that is probably true i mean there's probably a bunch of conspiracies that really went down that we don't know about because they were super successful
0: mm-hmm. but maybe there is a kind of a way to falsify it this is the second time in this podcast that i'm going to bring up batman okay and i think the second time i've ever brought up batman
1: yeah on the podcast certainly
0: yeah so batman as i understand it has a bat cave Yep. In in all the versions, I'm most familiar with the nineteen sixties Adam West Batman.
1: Oh my god, the one with the beer belly.
0: The one yeah, that's the best one. <laughs> but in all the versions of Batman, he's got a Batcave. Okay. Okay, I have a question for you. How'd that get built? Batman is secretly Bruce Wayne, so he's got a lot of money. Yeah. But how do you secretly build a Batcave? He didn't oh, like what, I did him and Alfred. No,
1: do no, it? no, no, I know this from okay. our, our podcast with Shelley. They detonated a nuclear bomb and melted the rocks and it turns into, what, a perfect sphere.
0: Okay. Nailed it. Nice. So who are they? I don't know. <laughs> like, how many people would that have taken? <laughs> yeah, it
1: would take a bunch of people to secure a nuclear bomb. And then, and then, and then all the
0: equipment. It. Sure. And to set it all up and to bring it all in. Yeah. So uh, here's a disturbing question. Did Batman murder the thousands of people that worked on the Batcave?
1: Huh. No, Batman is kind of a, a goon. I mean, if you really think about it. He 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 is actually the bad guy in most of the in most of the
0: episodes. That's joker talk.
1: If you look at what is the character Bane, right, in one of the more recent Batman incarnations, what's Bane about? He's trying to create a political revolution in which the disenfranchised have like a a a piece of stuff and Batman, who is a billionaire, comes and maintains the social order of like a few rich people run the show. Yeah. Batman is, is like a hired goon for like industrial capitalism run amok. He's, he's, he's a robber baron. Yeah, he is.
0: But my, but my issue is, Sorry. how does that... So yeah, he
1: totally murdered those people. How does for that sure.
0: Batcave get built? <laughs> All right, so this is the same problem I have with these, yeah. these tunnels. If they are some kind of top secret thing, they would have also required, what, like 30,000 people to work on it? 40,000 people? Surely, at this point, there should be some workers coming forward to describe the bizarre fittings and equipment that they installed. Hmm. But here's where things get dark, because somebody did come forward. Oh, yeah? Somebody did come forward to talk about exactly that. His name was Phil Schneider, and he was doing the UFO lecture circuit in the mid-1990s, and he made a bunch of claims. In these talks, which I've watched on video, he said he had training as a geological engineer and structural engineer— He had been hired in the 1970s by the U.S. government to help in the construction of secret underground facilities. He said there were, as of 1995, 129 deep underground bases in the United States. They were all connected by underground tunnels through which trains move at twice the speed of sound, Mach 2. He said that there were laser drilling machines that could burn through seven miles of rock in a single day. He also said that his father was a U-boat commander named Otto Oscar Schneider, who was captured and worked on the Manhattan Project from 1943 on, the H-bomb, and the Philadelphia Experiment. Okay. So that gives us a lot to work with All as right. far as what we can do with this guy's testimony. And I want to start with his father. Okay, so aside from the unlikelihood of a captured U-boat commander being given access to the Manhattan Project in 1943, <laughs> which I would say would be 0%. Right. Less, less, less likely than likely. So that's that's already a problem. There's no reason why a U-boat commander would necessarily have any kind of knowledge into nuclear physics. Right. They were diesel-electric boats. But even worse than that, I could not find any evidence, because I looked into it, of any U-boat commanders with that name. Mm -hmm. There were two Schneiders. There was Herbert Schneider, killed in U-522 in February 1943, and Manfred Schneider, uh, command of U-4706 at the end of the war, never sent on patrol. Now, we know, because we have looked at all these files, there were a lot of former Nazis who went on to be scientists for the American government.
1: Yep. And and um, uh, Project Paperclip is anybody interested, that's what you want to look up.
0: Yeah. Key aspect of that, that was after the war ended. Right. It was still horrifying and still wildly immoral, but it wasn't during the war. So I right. think that his claims about his father are already very problematic, and mm. then it kind of throws into question some of his other claims. Mm. And that's important to know because of where this is going. Okay. Phil Schneider also claimed that he was part of an underground shootout with aliens, specifically Large Greys in 1979 in a place called Dulce Base.
1: Okay. So do we need to clarify that there's the little greens and the large grays? or
0: I mean, we've never really done um, that taxonomy of right. the aliens. But yes, there are the, the greens and the large grays and the, the Nordic whites some, I've heard of. Yeah.
1: So, so for some people who are into the alien conspiracy, there is not just one group that has been visiting. Some of these people suggest that there are two or more groups who are warring with each other and uh, over us, our souls, our place in the universe.
0: And, and like I said, this is where things are going to start to get a little bit dark and disturbing. So what Schneider said is that the U.S. military had accidentally drilled into a secret alien base that had been there for hundreds of years in Dulce Base. During the shootout, an alien zapped him in the chest with some kind of laser, giving him cancer, but he was able to plug a couple of the aliens with his, with his Walther PPK. But as soon as I started hearing about Dulce Base... I realized that this was connected to another conspiracy theory that we have talked about. So we need to go back and revisit the case of a guy called Paul Benowitz. Oh, was that the base that he that was, was the base.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: That was the base. Okay, so let's very quickly, because, I mean, this is something Lee and I talk about all the time, but it doesn't make the podcast that often. Could you very quickly tell the story of Paul Benowitz? So
1: it's a really fascinating story and there's some really great uh, work done. I forget the author's names, but you're looking for Mirage Men, both as a book and a movie that narrates the the story of a man in the 70s and 80s by the name of Paul Benowitz. He is he's an engineer and he uh, has a small engineering firm that subcontracts to the local military base. So he's part of the American military but only at arm's length. He's himself not a soldier or anything. He has this private company, but they do work for this military base.
0: And he considers himself quite a patriot and like a proud American. So,
1: yeah, exactly. So this is like, I mean, you know, this is the type of guy who would have a house with an American flag on the front, um, drive a pickup truck and, you know, (laughs) eat apple pie. Like he is very American patriot, not a radical, um, not a critic. And um, he's an engineer. And he picks up radio signals that he is unable to make sense of. And so, again, as Nathan says, being a good patriot, he takes these radio signals to the base and is like, yeah, guys, take a look. This is, this is kind of weird. Uh, maybe this is something you want to look into. And what happens then is really sinister and mean so he Higan gets played by um, a special Air Force special agent, especially a guy named Dodi. They essentially say to Benowitz, look, those strange radio signals you heard are actually alien signals. We want you to kind of monitor them and tell us what's going on because we think that there's going to be an alien invasion. This was somebody who was just... Uh, a civilian and a patriot and worked for the military and did his due diligence. And they basically tried a mind experiment on him. And it went very badly for him. So he lost his business. He lost his marriage. And he was eventually committed to a psychiatric institution. He gave everything to the search for these extraterrestrials, believing that he was on the front line because he was being told so by secret military agents. And he believed he was on the front line of a a defense against alien invaders. Lost everything. And the uh, Doty and the Air Force's involvement here didn't just... It wasn't just a one-time thing where they were like, hey, you're onto something. They would take him out. They would stage events for him. They would... You know, they would make deals with him like, listen, you tell us what you know, and then we'll give you the real truth, which he would then disseminate into the UFO community. So he was used as a conduit to try and also kind of sway the UFO community in certain directions and plant information with them. And yeah, he he loses everything, including his sanity, and ends his life in a psychiatric institution.
0: Yeah, it's a horrifying story. And it's amazing how much of that disinformation that Benowitz is being fed by Special Agent Doty, it's amazing how much of that just becomes part of UFO mythology. And one of the key aspects was this idea of this underground Dulce base where there were secret aliens who were going to launch an attack on Earth. So as soon as I came across that Dulce base part in his testimony, I was like, this is coming from Benowitz, which is coming from... Doty, which is coming from the US Air Force. Wow. He made a bunch of other claims. Schneider made a bunch of other claims. He said that after the alien shootout at Dulce Base he was transferred to Area 51 and he said that he could confirm that Bob Lazar's story were accurate.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Now, we've got yeah, we've got our own issues with Bob Lazar.
1: Did we ever do an episode just on him?
0: We 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 didn't. The Area 51 episode he comes up a lot. Okay. Yeah. So hey, not credible. Not particularly credible. And Phil Schneider goes on to claim that there was an alien... You haven't heard about this. Okay. So, brace yourself. He claimed that an alien named Valiant Thor had been working for the Pentagon for decades. Uh Uh-huh. This wasn't the first time I've come across Valiant Thor. Really, eh? We'll do a whole episode on Valiant Thor. He claimed... And this is where it gets a bit sad. He also claimed that the government was murdering his friends. And that the government was making these murders look like suicide. And... Uh, Phil Schneider was friends with a guy called Dr. Richard Soder, who also wrote about underground bases and published something called the Alien Digest Newsletter, and was killed by a gunshot to the head. Whoa. So, Schneider really gets into this sort of the New World Order, the black helicopters, the false flags. Yeah. And he made the claim in one of his talks that the country only had about six months left before it became a fascist dictatorship run by the underground aliens. Okay. He also said that the cancer that the alien had given him meant that he only had about another six months to live as well. I see. In 1996, about six months after these talks were given, Phil Schneider was found dead. Okay. The initial report stated that he died of a stroke. It later turned out that he had been asphyxiated. Now, in the UFO literature that I've been reading, people make the claim that he had been strangled with piano wire. Okay. And that is awfully sus. (laughs) Like, if you get killed by piano wire, congratulations, you were just murdered. Right. So I had to figure out, okay, how did this guy actually die? Yeah. So I did something I don't like to do, but it's something that we often have to do in the course of our investigations. I checked out the autopsy photos. Okay. I don't like doing that because then I see them whenever I close my eyes for like the next couple months. Yeah. And uh, according to the autopsy photos, he wasn't strangled by piano wire. He was in fact strangled by a catheter tube, his own catheter tube. Ugh. Yeah, uh, pretty grim. But whether it was, I mean, whether he had done that himself or whether that was done by someone else, obviously it's it's very difficult to say. However, we can't, because he's said, he made a bunch of claims which were falsifiably untrue, because he made some other claims which seem to have come from disinformation campaigns that Mm. were run by the U.S. Air Force, I don't think we can necessarily believe the work of Phil Schneider. Right. But what we can get from the work of Phil Schneider is something that we warn our students about sometimes. Okay. Getting into this area, I mean, you and I, this is our life now. Yeah. Our, our life is <laughs> For
1: better or for worse. <laughs> our life is diving into conspiracy
0: <laughs> theories. And what alarms me is that it seems to work out so poorly for so many of these people, for the Paul Benowitzes, yep. for the Phil Schneiders, for the Dr. Richard Soders. Yep. It's amazing how people who start to go down that path can often end up in this sort of terrible way.
1: Isn't that though then just more proof, quote unquote, that they're onto something? I mean, this is often how this comes as portrayed is almost that if you're into conspiracy theories, especially not as a debunker but as somebody who is a proponent of certain conspiracy theories, especially ones that have, you know, an ultimate evil agency running the show behind the scenes, then the murder seems like, well, he was onto something. So that's why he was murdered.
0: I mean, it is shocking to me how many times when we did the Philadelphia experiment, there was, again, a case of somebody who said a bunch of preposterous claims and then was killed. Right. Like, it's amazing how often that is the end of these things. Mm. I'm, I'm I'm just trying to figure out at this point because we're wrapping it up. Yeah. And what is it that we want to say? I mean, going back to something you were saying earlier, what are the truths? Yeah. Of the Denver Airport conspiracy, because I think we could find some truths there.
1: Um, bureaucratic incompetence.
0: Bureaucratic incompetence is one. Um,
1: s- uh, things created by systems of which people are a part, but not necessarily created by like what the people wanted. Yep. And I think that's often the appearance of a conspiracy doesn't necessarily mean that there is a conspiracy. Sometimes things emerge and people didn't want it to happen that way, Mm -hmm. like traffic accidents.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that's amazing to me about all of this is that ultimately we're going to, I think, make the claim that there isn't anything particularly sinister about the Denver International Airport. But in trying to research the Denver International Airport, we bumped into... Operation Paperclip, yep. we bumped into... David Icke. David Icke, U.S. Air Force disinformation campaign. Yeah, was Paul Benowitz. And Paul Benowitz. And so, I, I almost wonder if sometimes, like you were saying, we know something is wrong. Mm. We know things aren't working. Mm. We know that systems are not human, and they're not working for the humans. Mm. And so, I almost wonder if, when we get some new airport with a bunch of weird art in it, we can sort of superimpose onto that weird place all of these unsettled feelings we have, yeah. which are genuine, that things yeah. are genuinely going poorly. Yeah, And it's easier to have like a handle so we can say that blue horse. Yeah. Well,
1: I think it makes incomprehensible systems a bit more comprehensible. It's almost like our, I don't like thinking about this in this way, but it's almost as though a kind of more primitive version of our brain it's just kind of making some order out of the dreadfulness out there and it's still better if there's an evil enemy that we can fight than if this is just the result of like a whole bunch of hapless people running around trying to do a half decent job
0: yeah so what i suggest <laughs> is rather than delving into the secret underground tunnels that occasionally we pop our heads out a bit mm. and maybe make like a genuine connection with the the people around us uh, and I think I'm saying that because of the Phil Schneider story and yeah. because of the Paul Bennewitz story. Yeah. So check in. In fact, if you want, you can even check in with us. You can email us at... The Uncover Up. No. No. You can tell that Lee never the, emails us. The podcast. You can email us at... <laughs> podcast. No, wait.
1: Yeah, yeah well, you right. don't know either.
0: Podcast <laughs> at theuncoverup.com.
1: Okay. Email us there. Podcast at theuncoverup.com. I don't know, this might have to be cut, I don't know. I did not expect to actually get to do some art theory today. But I got I got something to say here. So what is what I found quite interesting is that in the Western visual artistic tradition, there are two separate, I guess you could call it semiotic or symbolic sources that I know, right? I'm now just dropping these words that that artists your education is showing. Showing off because I didn't come prepared, or, or I prepared so for the you're wrong. You're overcompensating, thing. yeah. So now I got to use big words by and talking stuff. Talking about
0: I don't know semiotics
1: um, exactly. So there are two uh, symbolic traditions that artists draw from. This is a, you know I'm not going to belabor this, but there's an argument that a lot of Western intellectual culture finds its roots in these two traditions. There's the the Greek tradition. Plato and Aristotle and the whole philosophical tradition, and we get a lot of architecture inspired by that, and, you know, the notion of democracy and politics, all of that has its has its origins there, at least theoretically or in, in our imagination. But then there's the Christian tradition from the Middle East, you know, from, from Jerusalem, Jordan, that area of the world, and that has a very different visual tradition with, with the elements meaning different things. Now, here's I mean, I know this is a bit of a lead up, but here's the thing. What that means is that when Renaissance art hits the scene, you look at the stuff and there's a lot of they they are meant to be read allegorically. Renaissance art is 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 essentially exactly what people who are looking at these murals expect art to be, which is a, a kind of a secret code to some underlying meaning
0: kind of da Vinci code if you will.
1: exactly but here's the problem when you have an a, an artistic tradition that draws from two completely different cultural sources and mixes them together you can come up with a lot of very different meanings from one painting and there isn't actually a way to reconcile that and so the thing is you can interpret this stuff in a lot of different ways now that's that's when we still, and this is, <laughs> I do get to defend my position of art. Finally. This is where we still were within an artistic visual tradition that allowed itself to be interpreted. And then you have the modern turn where people throw paint on canvases and it resists interpretation at its root. It it, it completely bypasses it. And those artists like Rothko and others who were... Cog- Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. Splatter guy. Knew this and, and said, you know, this art is not interpretable. Now, people still try and interpret it for various different reasons. But I think that brings us to these murals, you know. We're in an, where we come from an artistic legacy that allows very ambiguous interpretations of allegorical work. And then we're in a, a period now in which really anything can mean anything. You know, whatever. So if if you want to derive a conspiratorial meaning out of these paintings, sure, that's going to be super easy, especially with the kind of fodder that we've been given with like, kind of Nazi type soldier ghost things, holding swords and then, you know, glass briefcases with dead animals. You know, it's, it's a, it's essentially a blank canvas. You know, it's whatever you want. Like you can determine what you want from this thing.
0: Yeah. Or you could ask the artist, Hey, what were you trying to do? Ah, you can't, I mean, you could, you, and people have, but, but that's that,
1: that within, within, uh, it, that you know, there's different. D- 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 there's different schools of thought.
0: No, I and think what what Lee, I'm going to show off my education for a second <laughs> because Lee is he, he's he's really <laughs> bringing it. His, he's bringing it. <laughs> I believe that you're referring to the work of Jacques Derrida. Well, oh my
1: God, we're really going to do this, eh? <laughs> I was actually referring to my main man Walter Benjamin. Oh well, and he actually notes there are at least two ways. Two interpretive schools. One is that says the truth resides with the artist. And if you want to know the truth, you go find out what the artist meant. And maybe you do some biography of the artist and discover their hang-ups and whatever. And then the other artistic interpretive tradition, which I like, it says that the, the, the viewer of the work of art is a co-creator of its meaning.
0: The death uh, of the author.
1: I guess. You're more the Derrida guy, so you want to well, do I'm some Derrida. I'm more a Roland
0: Bart guy. Oh, dear. I think all of this is going to get taken Yeah, away. I think nobody is listening at this point because we've gotten you and heavily I. into French post structuralism. <laughs>